Greetings and welcome to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I am the Reverend Mary Vano, and today we're going to get to speak with our bishop, the Right Reverend Larry Benfield, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Arkansas. Bishop Benfield, thank you so much for joining me for a conversation today. It's great to be with you virtually. So much has been going on in the church in the last seven months that I haven't been able to sit down and have many fun conversations with people. I usually get the chance to visit people on Sundays and share what I understand is going on theologically in the church. That's not been happening a lot lately in person, so it's good (laughs) to be with you today. So in most years, we get to have you to St. Margaret's for your annual visitation. And during that time, you always take some time to talk with the people, especially the ones who are being baptized and confirmed. This year, you haven't been able to make your visit, but perhaps the silver lining here is that instead of speaking only to the small group of people who are preparing for the sacrament, in this way, a lot more of us have the opportunity to hear your teaching. So Bishop, when I first invited you to do this podcast, I asked if you would talk with me about the baptismal covenant. When I'm teaching on this subject, I sort of naturally gravitate toward my favorite part, which is discipleship questions that come after the creed. You threw out something different. You suggested that we focus on the renunciations and affirmations. Before we get into detail on that, talk to us about why you think that that series of six questions is important for us right now. What we have seen in the Episcopal Church since the adoption of the 1979 Book of Common Prayer has been an absolute laser-like focus on those discipleship questions, as you call them. And we've had many discussions, many churches I go to, many individuals with whom I speak tend to focus on those five questions, and particularly the last question about striving for justice and peace among all people and respecting the dignity of every human being. What we have not been talking about in recent years has been those renunciations and adherences in the first part of the baptismal liturgy. And that was something that was also brought to us in the 1979 prayer book in a way that hadn't been present in previous prayer books. Previous prayer books talked a lot about renunciation, but they didn't talk a lot about adherences. And I think they are so fundamental to who we are as Christians and what we are asking individuals to do in their Christian life that we should give some time to really think about what's going on when we make those statements that we will renounce and we will follow. We're always renouncing and following something. We always have to choose to follow something, which means we have to leave behind something else. They're relevant questions today. Yes, and I'm sitting on the House of Bishops Theology Committee. For the past three years, we've been working on documents related to racism. And after presenting our presentation to the House of Bishops at this last meeting, we knew that we needed to go further. And the committee started thinking about the fact that we've looked at those discipleship questions so intensely that we perhaps also need to step back on the theology committee and look at the renunciations and the adherences and see how those things affect us in our lives in the 21st century. They do affect our lives in the 21st century. And so it's striking to me that they're actually quite ancient. As I understand it, we have evidence that the renunciations have been a part of the Christian baptismal practice since as early as the third century. And we think that at least during some times over the course of the long history, there has been a certain choreography as part of the rite. A lot of times when we think about prayer book worship, we are thinking simply about the words that we use in our worship and how the words affect us. 
the history of Christianity, the history of liturgical actions, and also the history of those actions in various prayer books of the church have also been important for us. We talk about what may have been going on in the third century, and then we can look at what's happened in the church through the 1500s, our first prayer book, and what's happening with this current prayer book. There is some indication that at some points in the church's early history, people who, when they were renouncing the spiritual forces of wickedness, as we like to call them, actually faced west. And given that the Christian churches often had altars and people facing toward the east, toward Jerusalem, or toward the sunrise, at least in our western geography, the people would then turn around and turn east in order to start talking about their faith. And often when they did that, they were at that point saying the Apostles' Creed. So we have that history of facing in one direction to renounce the world, facing in a different direction to talk about the creedal belief that we have. You get into our first prayer book also, and it's sort of interesting. When it was time for baptism, the priest would meet the parents and the children being baptized at the door of the church. And much of the service took place at the door where you could probably look around to see what the world looked like. And then when it came time for the baptism, you went inside the church and were baptized. The Anglican tradition, even in its first couple of prayer books, changed how that happened. First prayer book, you met at the front door of the church. The second prayer book, the parents brought the children into the baptismal font in the church. So we've always been trying to figure out what the liturgical, physical actions can be that might help us subconsciously in our lives as Christians. You can still find a lot of churches where the font will be at the door. That's correct. So you're making that transference of your life from what the world has to offer to what the church has to offer. It even sort of went into the confirmation rite in the early church as well, when oftentimes people would be baptized by a priest in one building or one room, and then after that, immediately brought into the church gathering room so that the bishop could lay hands on them. the description that you gave about facing west and then facing east. It's a 180 degree turn, which is imagery that we also use to talk about repentance, turning away from something in order to turn towards something. That word repentance in English or metanoia is the word that's often used with its Greek antecedents has been very much about turning around, and part of the Christian life is to turn around and view and hear the world differently. I find of the six questions that start, the first three are renunciations. It's the first one that seems to trip people up most often. It says, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? What does that mean? It's sort of interesting that when we were looking at revising the Book of Common Prayer in the 1960s and 70s, the trial services that came out omitted Satan, and the church wanted Satan put back in. And I think that was a wise decision. If I'm not mistaken, the trial services said that we were to be renouncing evil without that particular attestation of Satan being attached to evil. And I like to say that the use of the word Satan is good, 
we may not be believing in some sort of guy out there with a pitchfork who mm-hmm. is standing in the cosmos somewhere trying to affect us badly, or that little red devil that we sometimes see on people's shoulders in cartoons. But evil is personal. Evil is never in the abstract. When we participate in evil, we are doing something that affects adversely the lives of others, either directly toward other people or directly toward creation that then affects people's lives. So having this ability to talk about evil in a very tangible, specific, personal way is important for the church. And I'm glad we kept that word Satan in there. An opponent of God, right? Yes, that's yes. correct. So to me, when the three questions together, the three renunciations are renouncing evil in cosmic, that's the first question, and then in systemic and personal forms. So we get the cosmic, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And then the second question, what I think of as systemic, asks this, do you renounce the evil powers of this world? which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. What are the evil powers of this world that corrupt and destroy God's creatures? I think it's good that you use the words cosmic and systemic to begin this conversation, because I think we have to realize that often the forces of evil which corrupt us are forces we don't initially see. And there are many larger forces in society over which we have no control. And in some sense, the use of the word cosmic can refer to things over which we can't fix ourselves, that there's always going to be a cosmic force out there that's pushing against justice and pushing against righteousness, pushing against our turning toward that which is holy. And so that's what I'm starting to read into some of those questions about renunciation that we will continue to have forces over which we have no control that in every generation will present us with problems. I'm reminded of the fact that perhaps in the 1800s, Western civilization felt that things would get better and better and better. And then we arrived in the 20th century when we had these two massive world wars and many people lost their faith because things didn't get better and better. Perhaps this renunciation is reminding us that we can't assume things will get better, that we will continue to be in the church, as I like to say, the yeast that somehow in every generation is trying to make something grow. So the final renunciation then makes it even more personal. Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I feel like this is the most familiar because I think we all understand something about those sinful desires that pull us away from love. And that's where that old, perhaps third, fourth century tradition of facing West comes to play because it's fairly easy to look outside the windows of our houses, to look outside the windows of our office places, to look outside our communities in general and see the sinful desires that draw us from the love of God. Sometimes it's as easy as going to the mall. Sometimes it's, as, <laughs> you know, yes. and sometimes it's as easy as driving by the car dealership. There are all those desires out there that are so good looking that we want. And the church is reminding us, you got to turn around from some of those things if you're going to have a whole life. Because those things corrupt and destroy us, some of yes. them. When we move away from God, we're moving away from the source of our lives and a source of joy and love. 
And as the Bible likes to tell us, there is moth and rust out there that do destroy things. And we can look at the world differently. And what God wants for us is a whole life, a holy life. And so the invitation then is to turn around that 180 degree turn so that we are moving toward God. I think that one of those questions then is, do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior? That actual language was new in the Book of Common Prayer in 1979. We had always had the renunciations in the Book Mm -hmm. of Common Prayer, but this talk about turning to Jesus Christ, it was a way for us to talk in language about what the church had done in the third and fourth centuries as people faced West and faced East. We literally say now, do you turn to Jesus Christ? It might be sort of interesting if we started doing that in our churches. And I talked with some of the people being confirmed on occasion about this. What would it be like if we had people actually faced one way in church for those first three questions, physically turn around and face the other way for the next three questions? That's one part of what's going on here. And the second part is when we talk about accepting Jesus as Savior, I never look at the word Savior unless I also start thinking about the words salvation and wholeness and health. Somehow we find wholeness and health when we turn around from the things which tend to corrupt and destroy us. So that is the first question. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your savior? So we're turning toward Jesus with this acknowledgement that in this direction lies salvation and wholeness and life. And then the second question is, do you put your whole trust in his grace and love? I start finding some meaning in that question when I go back and look at that word again, cosmic, that you were using, because we'll get to like more specific ways of following Jesus in the final question of those six. But in this one is it's a matter of trust, even in times when we can't see what we are trusting in, Mm -hmm. when it's not very tangible for us. We say we will hold on to that which we cannot see. And that's sort of a cosmic holding on as far as I'm concerned. It's not just holding on to the very tangible things in life, but in the stuff over which we have no control out there in the world, we also have no real ability to grasp onto trust in a very tangible way in many times in our lives. And so we have to say, okay, I am going to step out on the edge and say that this is how I choose to live. And that can be frightening. But this is faith. And a lot of times we use that word faith and think of it only as belief, as in those things to which we can intellectually adhere to. But here we're defining faith as beyond the intellect and in more in line with what we can do. What will we place our trust in? I love an image from Soren Kierkegaard, 20th century theologian, who talked about faith as the ability to float in the ocean. Like if you were just thrown into the ocean and the water was deep enough and you were far enough away from your shore, you know, your instincts would tell you to swim and try to kick and paddle your way out of that situation. But Kierkegaard says the trust is knowing that that water will hold you up and the ability to lay back and float. (laughs) It's knowing that water will hold you up, even though you also realize that sea is so deep. There's so much below you. 
in a sense, it's also this willingness to trust that there's going to be someone who comes along who sees you. And we in the church would say, that's Jesus. That is Jesus. In some sense, Jesus is the ship. And of course, the church has always had that image of the church being a ship for centuries. And I think our world so much, that world that we're kind of turning away from, would tell us that grace and love are not trustworthy. They're too soft. But actually, it is the softness of God's grace and love that has the ability to hold us where we need to be held. Final question of the six is, do you promise to follow and obey him as your Lord? The word obedience is another one that trips up modern people sometimes. We like, I think, to think of ourselves as our own master, but that's not really Christianity, is it? No, and I think that word obedience is interesting. When people talk about obedience, many times they put the word in front of it of blind, as in blind obedience, which sounds very much to me like one is not using one's mind and thought processes in obedience. I find blind obedience fascinating because the word obedience has its roots in listening, not in seeing. And so when I'm seeing that word obedience or I'm seeing the word obey, I am telling myself I am making a commitment to listen. I am listening to Jesus. That doesn't mean it is a thoughtless listening, as the phrase blind obedience might give us. But very much for me, obedience is that active listening. How do I pick up through what I'm hearing from the church and also from the world on what it's like to follow Jesus? Listening to where Jesus will call us to go and to follow him. Now we know we're not alone in that. And often that following, that listening is unseen. (laughs) You just can't see it all the time, clearly. It requires thought, prayer, discernment. And we got to go back to that trust word as well. So I'm thinking again, then, about that choreography. The examination asks us to turn away from evil and all its forms, and then to turn toward Christ instead. And then in our current practice, the baptism takes place within a worship service that will then conclude by sending us all out into the world. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. So that is where Jesus will lead us, not away from this troubled world, but into the world that we may bring the love of Christ with us wherever we go. Maybe if I could make a change in the baptismal liturgy, it would be to put some sort of dismissal statement after the baptism (laughs) as a way to send people out. I have to say that one of the more interesting Easter's I've ever had was this past Easter in the midst of COVID when Mm -hmm. nobody could be in church. And on that day, we had to say, this is what perhaps Easter actually looks like when everybody is gone from home base or Mm -hmm. gone away from the tomb. They all ran away from the tomb. (laughs) They weren't finding anything holy and life-giving there. They had to go somewhere else. And if there's anything in the baptismal liturgy that we need to be reminded of, it's the fact that after baptism, we are simultaneously, hopefully growing in our understanding of faith, but also becoming evangels for the good news out in the world. So in a sense, the choreography is you look west, you look east, or you look outside the church, you look inside the church, Mm -hmm. and then we push you back outside into the world. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to be looking at that same world, that same westerly direction with brand new eyes and ears.
my Bible study this morning with our church, we were discussing Matthew chapter 22 and the story of when the Herodians asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes? The question was a trap. And Jesus surprised everyone with his answer, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God. And that leaves us to ask questions about what belongs to the world and what belongs to God. And I think what surprises us in that story is that I think Jesus is, first of all, he's saying that we are part of the world and he's not calling us out of the world. Pay your taxes, he says, but we belong to God first. We are made in the likeness and image of God, so we belong to God. And so we as Christians sort of have to struggle with how do we live in the world and belong to God? It's a fascinating question to ask, particularly as we come up on an election day in the country. I was reminded at one point that we at some point in past history had traditions in the Christian church that said, once democracy started in Western civilization, that, you know, perhaps one shouldn't vote because one is not part of the world. We're called to be separate from the world. I don't think that's the Anglican answer. The Anglican answer has always been for focusing on incarnation. We are absolutely a people in this Christian tradition of Anglicanism who believe in incarnation, that somehow God and the holy presence of the divine are present with us in this world. Now, we like to say often in this church that we see everybody else as parts of the body of Christ. And so you really can't detach yourself from the world when you see everybody around you as part of the body of Christ. And so thus, we as Anglicans are called to do what we can to make this world look more like the kingdom of heaven that Matthew would talk about in parts of his gospel. Because God loves the world. God loves the world so much. We in our baptism are both called out of at least evil (laughs) of the world but then called back into it to share that love, that gift of holiness and joy that has been given to us through our relationship with Christ. The concluding prayer of the baptismal rite is one of my favorites. We pray for the newly baptized saying, sustain them, O Lord, in your Holy Spirit. Give them an inquiring and discerning heart, the courage to will and to persevere, a spirit to know and to love you and the gift of joy and wonder in all your works. I absolutely love that prayer. Every time I pray it, especially over small children at baptism, I know inside myself that those people are going to have their hearts broken again and again in life. And I am hoping that in the midst of all of that brokenness, they will continue to find a spirit to persevere. And I love the absolute last part of that prayer about the gift of joy and wonder in all your works. Again, it's a call to an incarnational life. The very first part of sacred scripture says that God looked at creation and called it good. And our calling as well is to look at creation and call it good, to look at it with joy and wonder. And I think particularly to look at all of God's people with joy and wonder instead of fear. If we could do that, we could have some huge changes made in this world. It's a good thing to pray for and to change the way we see the world. Well, thank you for this, Bishop. I think our joy is complete for today. As you said in the beginning, 
we don't get enough opportunities right now to be together, to have these sorts of meaningful conversations. And so it's good to be together even when we're apart and get to share this love that God has given us. It's a real gift. I thank you for doing this. Thank you again to our listeners today. And I invite you to listen again next time. And please remember always that our J-O-Y is not complete without you. is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Bano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Mm-hmm.